In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33 and verse 11, we find where the Lord makes a promise to Israel that they will be delivered out of the land of the Babylonians after spending 70 years there and will come back and occupy the land that we refer to as Palestine. He says, again, there shall be the voice of joy or mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the voice of the people that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his mercy endureth forever. Now back in chapter 7, verse 34, we find where the Lord says, These things shall not be. At that particular time, the Babylonians had not come and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and taken them away captive, but that was going to happen. It was going to happen because God now is bringing forth a judgment upon the nation of Israel. They were given over to idolatry and great immorality. They would not hearken to the voice of God through the voice of the prophets. They would not do the commandments of God. And therefore, as God's judgment upon them, he was going to raise up a nation to the north, which would be the Babylonians. And they would come and they would destroy Jerusalem. And they would take the majority of the people captive. They would leave a few to till the land. But he said they'll be there for exactly 70 years. The Lord established the time precisely. But he says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I have of you, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And he says, These are thoughts that I have toward you to give you an expected end. And the end that they could expect was after 70 years, God would providentially come and deliver them and bring them out of the Babylonian uh, captivity they were in and bring them back down into the land of Palestine to the Jerusalem area, and they would reoccupy the land. And once again, there would be the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. But also, in addition to what you read in Jeremiah 7, be the voice of the people that would say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and His mercy endureth forever. You don't find that in chapter 7. But when the Lord told them that in chapter 7, there had been a time indeed when they occupied a land where there was joy, and there was gladness. When it says the voice of the bridegroom and the bride, it just simply means that there would be marriages and given in marriage and the land would be populated. It would be a joyful time and a joyful occasion as it usually is when two people get married. It's a time of celebration. It's a time when people are happy and people have a lot of joy and they're just glad to be there and to help share the joy uh, with those who are getting ready to unite together. He says there's coming a time that's not going to exist. Now that presents a very sad picture, does it not? that God was going to eliminate that. That was not going to be part of their history for 70 years, but the time would come when he would bring them back into the land, and these things once again would happen. The cities of Judah, the cities of Jerusalem would be populated once again. There'd be shepherds on the hillside tending their flocks. It'd be a, it, this is a picture, in other words, of a happy people. But back in chapter 7, he concludes that one when he says, Your land should become desolate unto you. Your happiness is going to be removed. You're not going to be happy. You're not going to be joyful. You're not going to be glad. There's no, going to be no celebrations of marriages, no, no 
uh, voice of the bride, no voice of the bride, your lands will be left to you desolate. It all comes down to one expression, the word obedience. As God had formed and created Israel and brought them out of the land of Egypt, through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, he promised to give them a land that the Bible says was a land of hills and valleys, but it was a land that was a good land, a promised land. It was a land uh, that would bring forth milk and honey. It's a very a beautiful picture, is it not, of, uh, of a rich land that they could occupy and would have as their own identity. If you look back in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord made it very clear that if you hearken unto my words and do my commandments, I will prosper you, I'll bless you, I'll make you fruitful. But if you disobey me and do not my commandments and hearken not unto me, then there'll be all these curses to be placed upon you. In the book of Isaiah chapter 1, he said, If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the lamb. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. The command was very clear, was it not? If you're willing and obedient, what, what will you do? You'll eat the good of the land. It's a good land. You'll eat the good of the land because I'll bless it. When you look at the nation of Israel and God's blessings and his judges upon them, they were mainly physical and outward. He said, I'll give you the former rain, the latter rain. He says, you should be fruitful in body. You should be fruitful in, in the land and your animals and all the things that uh, you're involved with. It'd be a, a fruitful experience. He says, if you hearken unto my words. But if not, again, there shall be judgment and there shall be curses that shall come upon the land. Well, Israel had done so bad at the time of Jeremiah, about 600 B.C., that the Lord is going to send forth a judgment in which, again, the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to take them captive. They're going to destroy the cities of the city. The walls are going to be broken down. The gates are going to be destroyed, burned with fire. And the land's going to be left in a desolate condition. Now, how does this work for us today? Things written in four time were written for our learning. We, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. I believe uh, the land of Canaan is a very beautiful picture of the Lord's church. It's a fertile land. It's a rich land. It flows with milk and honey. The word milk and honey in the scripture represents the very best there can be. Honey for sweetness and milk is the most complete a food product that's known to man. It's just amazing how little babies can, can just go for days and weeks and months and a year or two perhaps, and all they have is their mother's milk. But it's all they need. God arranged it that way. Uh, they can be strong. They can be healthy. They can grow and get a good report in the doctor's office, and that's, that's all they have. And there comes a time when you have to make a change. There comes a time when you have to start feeding them other things and understand all of that. But in the Bible, milk and honey represent the very best, the very finest uh, that can be had here in this world. And that's what the land of Canaan was. It flowed. It, didn't just have it. it flowed with milk. It flowed with honey. Now, it also had hills and valleys. Now, that represents ups and downs and ins and outs, does it not? The hymn writer had it uh, pretty good, I think. He says, you know, mixtures of joy and sorrow I daily do pass through. <laughs> Here in this world, each and every day is a mixture of joy and a mixture of sorrow. Uh, one of the brothers asked me this morning, was everything going good for me? I said, no. <laughs> I think most people sometimes say yes. But uh, then we talked about it a little bit. And there's hardly a day that goes by where everything goes good. But hardly does a day go by when everything goes bad. And I think there's more good than bad. If we really are honest about things, we just like to emphasize the negative, emphasize the, uh, you know, the bad more than we do the good and the positive. 
There's still a lot of good things here for the Lord's children, that's for sure. But these expressions, are, when you put them all together and add them up, so to speak, is a picture of happiness. It's, it's a picture of the Lord's people rejoicing here in a world that has problems and trials and tribulations of one kind or another. And certainly we're facing that in the land today. But it's never been a time when we didn't have to face these things. It just varies to degree, you know, from one degree to another. So it says the day's going to come. You're going to go back. You're going to reoccupy the land. And it says that shall be the voice. Now I want you to notice here, not just there shall be joy, there shall be gladness. There shall be marriages, but there will be the voice of joy. The voice of gladness. A joy and a gladness that needs to be expressed. A joy and a gladness to be felt, but also expressed. It's the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. And the voice of them that shall say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good and his mercy endureth forever. Now, Joy is different than pleasure. People get that mixed up. If you take and do a little study of the word pleasure, you will see the word pleasure is always associated with the human nature of man when it refers to man. Now, it does have reference to God. and When it has reference to the things of God, his pleasure, those are all good things. But pleasure, as far as man is concerned, is not a good thing. Look in Titus 3.3. For we ourselves are sometimes foolish, Deceive, serving divers' lust and pleasures. Serving what? Divers' lust, various lust, many lust, and pleasures. Hateful in hating one another. But after that, the kindness of God our Savior toward man appeared. Thank God for that fourth verse. <laughs> but after that, the loving kindness of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done. But according to his mercy, Satan has washed in regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. When you read of the experience of Moses as related to us in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now that was a big deal. You mean you're the son of Pharaoh's daughter and you refuse to be called that? <laughs> you know, the people of this world would die for something like that. They would. They'd give anything if they could just be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Imagine what the future held for the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Esteeming the, the reproach of Christ greater treasures, greater than all the treasures of Egypt. He says, now by faith, uh, he lived this kind of life. He refused these sayings rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Notice the expression, the pleasures, what? Of sin. The pleasure of sin, there is pleasure in sin, but it's not the, it doesn't bring joy. It usually brings heartache. It usually brings sorrow of some kind or another. The pleasures of sin last just briefly. And when it's over with, it's over, and there's usually consequences that follow all that. But Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he did not want to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. The word pleasure, as used in the scripture, has reference to carnality, has reference to the human nature of man. But joy is a different situation. When you read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, you won't read the word pleasure there, but you'll read the word joy. I know you've heard all this, uh, this here before, how joy is an acronym, but just get it again. 
J for Jesus, O for others, and Y for yourself. Now, we live in a world where it's spelled Y-O-J. And I don't know how you pronounce that, Y-O-J, but that's, how the, <laughs> that's the way the world spells it. Yourself first, others next, and if Jesus is in your life at all, he comes last. That'll never bring you joy. J, Jesus, O, others, Y, yourself. Get that order and you'll have joy. Not pleasure, you'll have joy and then you'll live a happy life. So what brings joy? Well, the things that brought the early disciples joy, I think ought to bring us joy today. I look over here in the second chapter of the book of Matthew and you'll find where there were some wise men and a star appeared unto them and led them as far as Jerusalem. Then they inquired, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now notice they said the one that's born is king of the Jews, not going to be. He is king of the Jews. Where is he? That's who they came seeking. And after a conversation with Herod, we find where the star appeared again. The Bible says, and the wise men were exceedingly, they rejoiced with great joy when they saw the light again. And the light directed them exactly where Jesus was as a young child. They came to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that star appeared again to further direct them and direct them to the very spot where the young child was. It says that the wise men had great joy. I want you to notice the word great as it precedes joy in a few of these situations here. We shouldn't just have joy, we should have great joy. And ministers who fail to bring this up except in December, one time a year, do the Lord's people a disservice. It's something I believe I need to think about on a pretty regular basis. Think about that wonderful day when the Savior appeared. And we find the angel Gabriel bringing a message unto uh, the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And the angel appears and says unto the shepherds, This day I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Lesson here, all people. Does that mean all people without exception? No, it did not. Herod was not overjoyed when he found out about the Lord Jesus Christ being born. He certainly is not in the expression, all people. But it is good news to all people in the family of God. It's good news for me. It's good news for you, I trust, this morning. I'm bringing you good tidings of great joy. Not just joy and great joy, but unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the announcement. A Savior has been born. I need a Savior. <laughs> you need a Savior. Thank God we got one. I don't need two Saviors. I just need one Savior. If, if His name is Jesus, I'm in good shape. I don't have to worry about being lost if I'm in the hand of Jesus. He's, he's a Savior of sinners, is He not? That's what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, 21. Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for that which is conceived of hers of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. When I think about that expression, when I think about the good news that Gabriel brought and, uh, and, uh, and what the wise men felt when they saw the young child, when I think of those scenes, it ought to bring great joy into my heart that Jesus will be born into this world to be my Savior. The prophets had spoken about it. They spoke clearly about it, like Isaiah 9, 7 and 14. And in that day, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. But it had been 700 years since Isaiah wrote that. 100 years passed, 200 years passed, 3, 4, 5, 6. Is it ever going to happen? Yes, it did happen. 700 years later, it happened. Jesus was born 
into this world. And there was great joy. Jesus lived 33 and a half years in this world. And he got, went to the cross and there he laid down his life so he could save his people from their sins. That's where the legal aspects of your salvation took place. That's where the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. That's where the God of heaven, my friends, was satisfied with what he saw. And he saw the perfection of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as it represented his elect family here in this world. When God sees you and God sees me, thank God he sees me through my representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. If he sees me and doesn't see me through Jesus, I have no hope. I just have no hope. There's no way I can make a strong enough case, my friends, to be established in the sight of God in a righteous state if I don't have Jesus to represent me, you see. But Jesus does represent me. And God sees me through Jesus. There's the only way he could see perfection in me. That's the only way he could see righteousness in me. It's the only way he could see holiness, you see, in me. It's the only way possibly it could take place. So the Lord has taken off that cross, placed into a barred tomb in three Days later, Mary Magdalene and the other sisters come. And you read this in Matthew chapter 28. Come down to verse 8. And when they found that empty tomb, the Bible said that they ran and had great joy. <laughs> An empty tomb brought great joy. <laughs> Aren't you glad the tomb is empty? Aren't you glad the throne is occupied, but the, but the tomb is empty? An empty tomb, but an occupied throne. The Lord Jesus Christ would believe to be the risen Savior. And it brings me joy when I think about an empty tomb. I don't go around visiting empty tombs. Do you? I go to the cemetery occasionally, but I know uh, the body of the person I've gone to look at the grave is lying beneath the soil in a casket, uh, in a vault down there. You know, the body is there. The soul and spirit, thank God, is not. But the body is in that vault, in that uh, coffin, but six feet beneath the ground. I don't go expecting uh, uh, the dirt to be gone and the vault gone, the coffin gone. But when Mary and them got to where Jesus was buried, they found, hey, he's not here. <laughs> and they ran with great joy. When I think about the empty tomb, it ought to bring great joy into my life. Then the Lord spent 40 days upon the face of this earth. And then he met with his disciples in a little place called Bethany right outside of Jerusalem. And the Lord gave them a final message, a farewell message, if you please. And then those disciples watched and observed the Lord Jesus Christ ascend off this earth right in a place called heaven. They saw him disappear. They saw him rise and go into the sky and through the clouds and just disappear. You know, every time we send a spaceship up in the sky, you can see it for a while and finally it'll disappear. It's pretty amazing from a human perspective. It pales in comparison to what those disciples saw in Acts chapter 1, I tell you that. Acts chapter 1 saw a man without being in some spaceship, in some space suit. They saw a man to find the uh, law of gravity. He didn't uh, have to be in some kind of space machine or whatever. Uh, he just left on his own power and he ascended right from this earth right into glory and went right in there and they witnessed it. And there's some angels there said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? <laughs> well, why wouldn't they gaze? <laughs> you you going to tell me you wouldn't have gazed into heaven? <laughs> if you'd have been there, you would have. And I would have, oh, what a sight that must have been, you see. And when he went out of sight, the Bible says, the disciples returned to Jerusalem and worshipped him with great joy. With great joy. Our joy, the greatness of our joy should be 
to the degree of the truth we understand of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his empty tomb and his ascension right into heaven. It brought the disciples joy then. It should bring joy to your heart and soul right now. I rejoice when I read about it. I rejoice when I hear it preached. I rejoice when I try to preach it, <laughs> you know. And so I want you to have joy this morning. If you just keep your mind on these things that are facts, <laughs> these things that the Bible presents to us in such, uh, such a wonderful manner and wonderful way, you can still have joy here in this old world in which we're living. It'd be the voice of joy or mirth, M-I-R-T-H. It's the same, same word as joy. But the voice of gladness. How glad are you here this morning? That word glad, by the way, uh, can have a carnal definition to it. But in the sense I'm using here this morning, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's a joyful thing that you should experience in your life. I read over here in Matt, uh, John chapter 8, verse 56, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. There's the word rejoice along with it. Rejoiced to see my day and was glad. <laughs> when, was, when was he glad? When he looked around and saw that ram caught in a thicket by its horns. A couple of weeks ago I spoke on this to you. When he looked and he saw the ram caught in the thicket by the horns, he knew then God had provided a lamb in the place of his son Isaac. And therefore Isaac could be taken off the altar and that ram would take his place and he and his son could come down off that mount. Just like he told those men that went along with me, he says, you tarry here. Why and the lad go yonder to worship? He never intended to come back toting his son a, a dead corpse, my friends. He didn't know how, but he knew some way, somehow, that God would provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Of course, that points us up way down the road to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. He took my place and your place. That's why Abraham rejoiced to see the day of God. And he was what? He was glad. <laughs> he was glad. Now, I've never had such an experience as that, but I, I think I can just imagine a little bit how glad he must have been to have a son delivered that was about to leave this world. He was glad. In the book of Luke chapter 8 and verse 1, the Bible says uh, something a little uh, interesting to me concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It said Christ went throughout the land, throughout the land, throughout all the cities, not just one or two, throughout all the cities Christ went preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Preaching and showing. It's the showing that's interesting to me here. He went throughout all the cities of the land preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, brethren, is a place where you hear glad tidings. How did he show the glad tidings? Uh, I think just kind of like the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. It can be, should be felt, but it should be manifested. It should be declared in your face, in your expression, in your countenance, in your life, in your conversation, in your, your work and, 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 and in activities here in this life. It needs to be manifested, you see. He went preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom. When people see me, I don't want them to see me like a mule with my chin dragging the ground. How about you? I never have seen a, a mule that looked happy. <laughs> and I was raised on the farm. I know uh, I handled a mule from time to time. I never have seen a happy mule. <laughs> I don't think I'd be happy if I was a mule. <laughs> they had to pull, get out there in the field and pull the plow and work hard, all those kind of things. 
I can remember uh, we had this mule. She's a, a kind of a small red mule. And you could always find her up near the barn throughout the year until there come time that she had to be used for work. And after the first day of putting the bridle on her and bringing her out and putting her out in the field, the next day you went to try to find her. She was way down there at the back end of the pasture, my friends, hiding in the woods. I never have seen a happy mule. But I declare, I'm around some people sometimes. And as I said before, I believe the only cheer they have comes in a box in the washroom. And I believe there's a detergent, isn't it? A dishwashing detergent called Joy. That's the only joy they have in the kitchen. They got joy in the bottle. They don't have joy in their life. Well, Jesus Christ went preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of the Lord. He was glad. Notice what he saw. He saw the day of the Lord. He saw the future day of the Lord. And in John chapter 20 and verse 20, you'll find the first appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 disciples behind closed doors after his resurrection. Christ has been resurrected. He appears to the 12, well, to the 11 disciples. There's one missing. Actually, at this point, there's 10 disciples. Uh, Judas is out of the picture. And you got Thomas who wasn't where he's supposed to be. Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas missed out on a great blessing because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be with the other disciples there, and he was not there. And the Lord appeared to them, and the Bible says he showed them his, the nail prints in his hands and, and his side where the sword went through. And the Bible says, when the disciples saw the Lord, they was glad. <laughs> I, I, you know, I never have seen the Lord physically, literally seen him. But if I'm not deceived, I've seen him many times by an eye of faith. And when I see the Lord, it makes me glad. How about you? If somebody was to call me on a Sunday morning, not knowing any better, uh, you know, say at 8.30 in the morning, say, well, what you going to be doing today, Brother Lawrence? I, you know what I'd tell them? I'd say, well, I've got an appointment at 10.30. Uh, me and the Lord's got a meeting together at 10.30. I've got an appointment at 10.30 to meet with the Lord and the Lord's people in the Lord's house, a place where I can see the Lord by an eye of faith, you see. It said, when they saw the Lord, they was glad. Now, they saw it a little different. They saw it before the crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, there were no nail prints. Before the crucifixion, there was no place in his side, was it? But now they see where the sword pierced the side. Now they see the hands where the nails went into his head. They see that. They see a crucified but risen Savior. When they saw the Lord, they was glad. I'm glad when I see the Lord. When I see the Lord, it takes my mind away from everything else. When I see the Lord, it takes my eyes off the trials and tribulations and all the problems of this world right here. That's why some people, my friends, have no joy and they have no cheer because they're not seeing the Lord. It's not they couldn't see the Lord, but their eyes are fastened on the things of this world here like Peter's was when he began to seek in that storm. He took his eyes off Jesus. When he saw the Lord, he did the, the impossible. When he saw the Lord, he walked on the ways. He saw the Lord, he walked on the water. I'm telling you, there is one man outside the Lord Jesus Christ that literally walked on water, and it was Peter. He walked on water because his eyes was on the Lord. When they saw the Lord, they was glad. I come to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. There's a man by the name of Barnabas, and Barnabas was in Jerusalem, but he went down to Antioch. He went down to Antioch, and the Bible says, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. <laughs> 
when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he, can, and he encouraged the people there to continue on uh, in their service to the Lord. How do you see the grace of God? Just like you see the wind. Anybody ever really seen the wind? Do you see what the wind does? Do you see the effects of the wind? You see the leaves going back and forth and the limbs moving up and down. Uh, you can feel the wind. You can uh, see the effects of the wind, right? Well, the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? I've seen the grace of God many times in my life. I'm seeing the grace of God here this morning. Do you see the grace of God when you see sinners, my friends, confess that they're a sinner and they love the Lord and Jesus Christ? Only the grace of God could bring about a feeling of a person like that. When you meet in the house of God and people are singing in the Spirit and singing uh, with grace in their hearts to the Lord, you're seeing what only grace can do in somebody's life. That's right. When you see them singing with grace in their hearts to the Lord, when you see them singing or making melody in their hearts to the Lord, I'm telling you that's the grace of God in operation. You're seeing people who've had an experience of grace. You're seeing people uh, that the grace of God brought salvation to them and delivered them from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you see the grace of God. When somebody comes walking down the aisle, they come asking for a home in the church. You're seeing the grace of God in operation. It takes uh, God's presence, my friends, in somebody's life to motivate them to do that. And they see themselves to be weak and poor and worthless and a sinner in this world, but they see a great God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God in operation. Oh, I, I love to see the grace of God. And uh, I love to see the effects, in other words, of the grace of God, the impact of the grace of God in somebody's life. I've seen uh, people who by nature were big and burly and rough and tough and one thing and another. But when God's grace got hold of them, they came as a meek and a lowly lamb, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. <laughs> I know a good friend. I had a good friend, my friends. He's gone to be with the Lord. But he was an amazing person, unique to say the least. And I've said many times, if he lived back in the 1800s, you'd be reading about this man rather than David Crockett or Daniel Boone. I'm telling you, he was rough and he was tough and there was nothing he was afraid of. I mean, absolutely nothing. I was with him one time in a, in going down a river. He said, Brother Ronald, have you ever seen a two-piece snake? I said, I don't guess so. He said, well, I'm going to show you one. He saw a snake hanging from the limbs over there just above the water. He went over there and he grabbed that snake. He jerked it in half. He said, that's a two-piece snake, Brother Ronald. He come walking up one time while we were having lunch at a meeting and he had a snake inside his shirt. You say, Brother Lawrence, he wasn't rough and tough. He was crazy. <laughs> oh, he was, he was an amazing individual. Amazing. But I've never seen a more tender-hearted man in my life who loved to sing the hymns of Zion, who loved to praise the Lord and come every Sunday morning. Now, he loved to hunt, and he hunted the fish. But come Sunday morning, he sat right on the front pew, right there in the front. And he participated, He's, his whole life was the kingdom of God. His whole life was the church of the Lord and Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that's the grace of God in operation, brother. When I look at my own life, I see the grace of God in operation. How about you? <laughs> he says, he, when he saw the grace of God, he was what? He was glad. 
It makes me glad to see the operation of God's grace. Makes me glad to see God's grace, uh, how it affects people, how it has a, a cause, a, you know, an impact in the lives of the Lord's people. It makes me glad. The things that made the disciples glad in the day ought to make you glad today. The things that brought joy to them ought to bring joy to you in the day and age in which we live. It says there should be the voice, the voice of those who say, praise the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The expression Lord of hosts is an Old Testament expression. It's found many, many times. And you put it all together, you'll find he's the Lord of hosts of creation. There's a great host of stars in the universe, right? Who put them all there? The Lord of hosts did. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of the sun and the moon and the stars. He's also the nation of Israel. Uh, after they were formed and created and later on became a great multitude of people. There's about two million of them when they came out of the land of Egypt. The Bible says that the Lord was the Lord of hosts of the nation of Israel. But there's another host of people known as the elect family of God that God chose before time ever began and foreknew them and chose them and elected them, predestinated them, loved them and named them before time ever started, time ever began. And there are people that you cannot number. If you can number the sand of the seashore, you can number them. Who can do that? If you can number the stars in heaven, you can number them. Who can do that? If you can count and comprehend the dust of the earth, who can do that? You cannot do that. They're a motif without number, you see. He's the Lord of hosts of them. He's the Lord of the host that you belong to this morning. He says, in, in they, it's the voice of the people shall praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. The Lord is good. I, I'll tell you what. Uh, how good is the Lord? <laughs> oh, it's, I don't even have the words to express it. I wish I did. But I'll at least try. <laughs> in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ has said in verse 11 and also verse 14 that he was the good shepherd of the sheep. <laughs> and the good shepherd of the sheep laid down his life for the sheep. Yes, he is the good shepherd who done a good thing when he laid down his life for the sheep, did he not? The Lord indeed is good. The Lord is good in the fact that he has a good will. You look in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not, uh, uh, be, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed as you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. There's three things about God's will. It's perfect, etc., but it's also a good will. God has a good will, right? He is, the Lord is good. The Lord is the good shepherd. The Lord has a good will. I look in uh, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. And Paul says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us uh, unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God has a good will. He has a good pleasure, brethren. <laughs> I'm glad that God's pleasure is a good pleasure. Now, I mentioned to you a while ago, that word pleasure is used concerning man. It's not a good thing. Concerning God, it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. When you look in Isaiah 53 and 11, it says, He shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. For the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall be satisfied. Aren't you glad I can preach and you can hear me preach about a satisfied God? I'm talking about the satisfaction, brother, of the salvation of his children. God in heaven was satisfied with the work of God the Son. 
He wasn't disappointed with his work. He wasn't let down with his work. He was satisfied with the work of his son. His son did exactly the will of the Heavenly Father and accomplished the will of the Heavenly Father. And someday, brother, we'll all be in glory to show forth that great work, the fruitfulness of that work. And the Father was satisfied. God's level of satisfaction is far superior to mine. I'll tell you, I have <laughs> my level of satisfaction uh, is not quite as high as it ought to be in some areas, I suppose. Uh, but we have various degrees of levels of satisfaction, correct? When my children came home, they got an S on report cards. You know, that's the way they used to do it. S's and N's and U's and all that. Boy, they better not come home with a U. And then, uh, they better not come home with an N. I was looking for S's. <laughs> but they came home with an S. That meant the, the teacher was satisfied with whatever was under consideration. Did that mean they were perfect? Did that mean that they got 100 on every test? Did that mean uh, they never missed a question, never missed an answer? No, it did not. Because the level of satisfaction of the teacher is not the level of satisfaction of our great God in heaven. Our great God in heaven's level of satisfaction was this. If my son lost one, I would not be satisfied. If my son's blood was shed in vain, I would not be satisfied. But the father was satisfied with the son because his life was perfect, holy, and righteous. And therefore he took the place of the elect family and one day we'll all be with him in a place called heaven. The voice of the people that say, say praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. Philippians 1 and 6, Paul says being confident this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is involved in a good work. When he borns you, the Spirit of God, that's a good work. It's the only, uh, he's the only one who can do this good work. And how long will it last? It'll last forever. He says, being confident this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord comes again, brother, that good work that God performed in you will still be in existence. The Lord is good. James 1, 17, every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of life, and there is no variance, neither shadow of turning. What does every good gift come from? It comes from a good God. It comes from a God that is good. I was talking to, uh, to my oldest son the other day, David. He called me up, and uh, two hours and eight minutes later, we hung up. <laughs> two hours and eight minutes later, we hung up. And we talked about a variety of things, but during the conversation, uh, he said, Dad, he said, I just want to tell you, the Lord is good. <laughs> you don't know how that made my heart feel. Lord, uh, uh, Dad, the Lord is good. He was just bragging on the Lord for the blessings in his life. And he said, the Lord is good. And I said, amen, the Lord is good. Every good and every perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights. The greatest gift, of course, was Jesus Christ. He's the gift of God. It came down here. But the gift of life naturally comes from God. The gift of eternal life comes from God. It's a good gift. It's a perfect gift. Because he's a good God, and only good can come from God. And his mercy endureth forever. I'm thankful that God's a God of mercy. And his mercy endures. And that just endure for a day, or a week, or so, a long life's pathway. It endures forever. When I start reading how the mercy of God uh, how I embrace the mercy of God. I go to Romans chapter 9 and I read about where there are vessels of mercy are full prepared unto glory. Even before time again, 
when God knew you personally, individually, he knew you as a vessel that he had mercy on in that great work before time began. We were vessels of mercy. When the work of regeneration, we look in Titus 3 and 5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he had to wash us with the wash of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You didn't deserve, deserve to be regenerated. Now, I didn't deserve to be regenerated. But I was regenerated because I belong to God, my friends. I'm in his hand, and he promised to do just that, and he did it. But by an act of his mercy. And when Jesus Christ died for me on Calvary, the psalmist put it well in Psalms 85:10, when he said, In mercy and truth have met together, and righteous peace have kissed each other. When you look back 2,000 years ago, I want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He hung suspended between heaven and earth. And you see him hanging there. You see mercy and you should see truth. You see righteousness and you should see peace. Outside of that great work, there'd be no righteousness, there'd be no peace, and there'd be no truth fulfilled. But he's a God of mercy. He's a merciful God. He sent his son to die for us that we don't deserve. That's the difference between grace and mercy. I love those two words, how they work hand in hand together. In Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What kind of throne is it? It's the throne of grace. Aren't you glad it's not the throne of the law? Aren't you glad it's not a legal throne? Aren't you glad it's a throne of mercy? An occupied throne by a risen Savior, an ascended Savior, and we have the promise of a returning Savior, and we come to that throne to do what? To obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Mercy and grace. Grace is that favor of God upon undeserving sinners. And mercy is what God does, you know, as his act toward us and not giving us what we do deserve. The one that Jeremiah said in the book of Lamentations, the Lord's mercy is that we're not consumed. How often do you think and I think, Lord, why do you allow this world to continue on like it is? Why don't you just come back and burn her up? It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. But there's one more reason why the Lord doesn't do that. And that's because this world shall not end until the last elect child of grace, the last object of his love, brother, has been born of the Spirit of God. God is long-suffering and none should perish, but all come to repentance in that regard. And they shall, in the sense he's talking about there, God will born them of the Spirit of God sometime between conception and death. And this world will not end until that's been accomplished. Thank God. I'm glad I'm here today. <laughs> I'm glad you all showed up. <laughs> you know, uh, somebody tells me, every once in a while somebody says, Brother Lawrence said, I, I won't be able to be there Sunday, but I'll send my spirit. I said, please don't. I have several reasons for that. If you can separate yourself from your spirit, we've got to arrange a funeral. Because John t James tells us, for as the as a faith without works is dead, so the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So if you can stay somewhere else and send your spirit, we'll be calling the undertaker. And that'd be a sad time, wouldn't it? Number two, I can't see a spirit. I can't see if they're happy or sad. I can't tell if they're rejoicing or just wanting me to stop. I, don't, <laughs> I, I can't see spirits. All right? And if I could see a spirit, I'd be so frightened I couldn't preach. So please don't send your spirit. I prefer you in person where I can lock eyes on you and you can see me and I can see you and we can just communicate, my friends, through the countenance and the spirit of God because God is good and his mercy endureth forever. There'll be the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. 
And the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. And I, I was really wanting to get into that a little bit, but I'm not going to do it today. But the voice of them that shall praise the Lord. That's, that's the people I want to be in the midst of. I want to be in the midst of a people who don't go around bragging on themselves, pointing to the accomplishments of men, but gather together to hear a man brag on God. My dad gave me a lot of good advice, and he always told me you never should brag about anything. But my heavenly father told me I could brag all I wanted to on his son. And so I really enjoy doing that. <laughs> That's why David said he boasted the Lord all the day long. You start in the morning and you start bragging on the Lord. You get to noontime, you're bragging on the Lord. You get to supper time, you're bragging on the Lord. You get to a bedtime, you're bragging on the Lord. You go to bed, uh, you fall asleep, just bragging on the Lord. And you barely scratch the surface. That's what preaching is all about. Romans 10 and 15 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. Good things. How beautiful the feet of them that do that. Their feet indicating a readiness to do it. Being willing to go and do it. Travel and do it. Because they got a message of glad tidings of good things to God's people. Romans 8 and 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. God is good, right? And God makes those things work together in verses 29 and 30 for our good. We know that all things work together for good. Not all things without exception. All things under consideration. And those all things, the fact that he foreknew you and predestinated you and called you and justified you. And one sweet day, my friends, he'll glorify you. Those are things working together for your good from a God that is good. That's why it's glad tidings of good things. When the gospel is preached, good things come forth from the man of God.